Hello, and welcome to Towards a Smarter World. This is your host, Cruz Saunders, and I'm joined today by Todd Unger, the Chief Experience Officer and Senior Vice President of Marketing and Member Experience at the American Medical Association. He has led digital change initiatives at AOL, Time Inc., and the Daily Racing Forum. Todd is a transformational leader for the digital age, bridging digital technology, content, product development, marketing, and business development. He's driven record growth in audience, customers, e-commerce revenue, and ad sales at the AMA. Todd, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's great to be here with you. So you were brought into the American Medical Association as a Chief Experience Officer, or CXO. That's a relatively new industry title, although at A, we're seeing it pop up more and more. Can you tell us about your role and why the AMA created it? Well, sure. I think the title CXO has been around for a little bit, but it's got so many different spins. If you look, I, you know, I did my research when I first got this job and I was like, how do they define it? But if you look, it's been defined in terms of design, customer service and operations. But I think the title has evolved into what I call a buck stops here role that the digital era demands. And it really is someone who is prepared to integrate the worlds of marketing and digital product design and content. And I think that is why they brought me here. I came from a very, very different background, although I've been in digital media for a long time. My prior role before this was working in horse racing at the Daily Racing Forum, which is an e-commerce operation. But they looked kind of beyond that and saw a person who was able to work with an organization that had been around for over 120 years was a mainline kind of publishing operation and to bring it into the digital age. And that was the skill set they were looking for as opposed to specific healthcare experience. Got it. And what kinds of metrics and measures was the AMA hoping to influence by hiring a chief experience officer? And what kind of impact does your team have? First and foremost, it was about membership. So membership, membership, membership. That is why they brought me in. And there was a sense that in creating an experience with our members and with non-members that we weren't fully utilizing digital platforms. And there's a very, very clear metric around acquisition and retention. And so that was the beginning of it. I've since added responsibilities for marketing to my team. And so I look at other metrics around how people affiliate with this brand and believe what it is that we stand for. And so your customers are physicians, essentially. Yeah, physicians, medical students, and residents. Okay. But we also, broader than that, as I look into, you spoke about additional metrics. I mean, there are other audiences outside of the core that are not membership that we are trying to reach with our perspective. That includes health tech industry, includes policymakers, government. How do we achieve, and patients, obviously, how do we achieve a mission of this organization is part of what I do here. And that means for them to be you know, thoroughly familiar with the work that we're doing and for our mission programs and initiatives to reach who they're supposed to. And quantitative measures are pretty clear when you're driving membership and retention. Those numbers are self-evident. What about the qualitative side of customer experience? Are there measures that your team and the organization as a whole is interested in on the more subjective end? Most of them are quantitative in some nature, just some people deal with NPS scores or you know, we have our own kind of internal measures of customer success. But I think the newer thing that we're looking at is when we do measure the, the affinity for this brand and strength of the brand, you know, it's back to similar things to when I worked at Procter & Gamble a long time ago, which is, you know, every, every year you do a usage and attitude study. 
you figure out whether or not people are experiencing the brand in the way that you are intending. And so those are quantitative measures. I guess also for, you know, to a certain extent, there are anecdotal and qualitative things that people pick up on regardless. I'm very much personally involved in our outreach and experience with members. And it is very gratifying to hear them play back that what they're experiencing with the AMA is different and better and they love it. And I've seen some of those numbers. You've been able to drive some impressive membership growth at the AMA with some of your strategies. What processes led to those outcomes? Well, it's a lot. I would say it's not just one thing. I'm now about two and a half years into my tenure here, and I, it's gone so fast. But when I think back to that initial period, it seems like a long time ago, even though it really wasn't in the scope of things. But it started with a roadmap. I mean, when I got here, people were you know, really not even sure what a chief experience officer was going to do. And I had to define what that role was and what experience was. It's mainly laying out a strategy and roadmap for what we we're going to do and close in and longer out. I did a presentation to the, all the marketing leaders here at the AMA about a week after I started. And you know what was kind of interesting as I look back and kind of like what that roadmap says really did hold hold for about you know the first eighteen months. It really did provide a pretty clear roadmap, so you can get a pretty strong sense of what needs to change reasonably rapidly, and then begin to kind of institute those changes you know at full force. But I think that laying out a vision for where we were going with this thing it was a pretty much an everybody wins type of scenario. Once those things get into place, chalking up a bunch of kind of quick wins. That let people know that like the changes you make can make a real difference and they don't have to take a long time to do that. What does a quick win look like in customer experience? From my standpoint, we think about communications and we think about whether those are effective at bringing people on board or not. I came on and looked at the type of communication we're having through email and realized immediately like this is not how people operate up. These templates weren't working properly. They weren't geared toward people who were primarily looking at communications on their phone. I said, you know, literally, where what are the open rates? What are the conversion rates on these things? And let's redesign that process really fast. But as part of that, I discovered like an organizational issue too in terms of how long it was taking for us to actually send out marketing communications by email. It was a lot of time. There are just too many people involved with not necessarily the right skill sets. And some of the paradigms that were being applied to email communications were just not appropriate in terms of the layout of it and the branding and all this kind of stuff were getting in the way of actual performance. So we reduced the time it took to send out an email from a period of weeks to what I'm used to, which is like you can turn around in a couple of hours. The design was better, the performance is double, and people that are getting the emails are the appropriate folks for that in terms of targeting. Nice. And so it sounds like you have some ability to directly influence UX and technology underneath you. Are those reporting lines up to you, or are you working with teams outside of your direct report? On that particular function, those are now under my purview. I will say that one of the key things, and this does get to experience management in the modern world, is a lot of those functions are either siloed or not reporting into one structure. And when I got here, what I did realize is that the team that it would take to effectively work on a digital platform was kind of spread out all over the place. There were analytics folks that were in IT. There were content people that were in the marketing side of it. There was a small UX team that was on my team and the email team had been moved out of marketing and was kind of new to this new structure of experience. And they just hadn't been really knitted into it. 
a cohesive team organized around the outcomes that we were looking for. That's when I think of like, to really be effective today, like organizations need to understand that marketing and product are so thoroughly intertwined. It's not like producing mouthwash anymore. This is an era that demands that those two things be working together. And if they're not, you just can't move fast enough and you can't create these kinds of seamless experiences that people are used to getting all over the place. Yeah. It's something that we see most often in large enterprises that are very siloed is this drive to create omni-channel customer experiences, but a organization structure that does not lend itself to easy collaboration and federation of effort. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons you see like these additional titles getting added, whether it was chief digital officer, which was in my last role, chief experience officer where I am, is that there is this gap. And organizations recognize there's a gap. They can't get digital transformation or efforts done fast enough, or they're not being responsive in terms of creating customer experience. We'll add this person, but what they don't do necessarily is fix the organizational structure so that they're, again, organized around the outcomes that they want, set up to be as agile as they need in an environment where we are today. Yeah. That is definitely a theme I think many organizations, mid-market and enterprise, are struggling with today. And it's great to hear that you've seen the light at the end of that tunnel. The other part of it that's really hard for folks, in, in addition to org structure, is also just prioritization, because there's so much that we're being asked to do and deliver. And marketers in particular, and product teams, are all just working as hard as they can to keep up with basically core publishing, core content production, core customer experience kinds of things without really putting together beautifully stitched together personalized interactions across the customer journey. Even though that's often why they bring us in is to try to help with that, but it's they're coming from this place where there's just a mess and it's hard to prioritize. And I don't know how you saw the organization when you first got there, but when presented with a big mess, a lot of priorities, a lot of publishing needs. What do we do to focus, to prioritize, to take one step at a time, to make manageable quick wins happen in an environment that might not really lend itself to that out of the gate? Well, I think the number one thing that you have to, I guess, accept, and especially for a person in my role, and I think any person in marketing or a chief experience officer, that the job is growth. And all priorities grow, pardon the pun, out of that. And I think there is a lot of murkiness around what people think their jobs are. And so like a lot of the things you just talked about are can be tactics toward achieving that, but you need a growth strategy. And for me here, that occurred. I, I had a, my former COOs who brought me here, you know, talked about like gears. The first gear that I was in was figuring out how do we really organize around these outcomes? How do you build that team and what? As you kind of carefully go through like the experience that you're trying to get toward growth, where do you see these immediate gaps? Those kinds of quick wins I generally find come out of testing and just my experience. Like, you know, when I get here and I look on our homepage and there's no button at the top that says become a member. And just because this is an organization that wasn't necessarily thinking of itself as a digital commerce enterprise or having a digital commerce infrastructure. And so all those kind of lessons learned out of my prior experiences said, I know that basic stuff. 
that needs to be in place for you to kind of do the job. And you you start thinking about the basics of a funnel, again, not necessarily innate to a mission-based organization that just need to be put in place. And and there's a lot of low-hanging fruit in doing that, whether it's fixing the way your email goes out, seeing how the website works, getting that structure in place before you begin, I will say, to go in the second year, which is where there are like the less sexy structural things that need to be put in place, especially in terms of the kind of commerce experience that people expect these days in terms of signing up for a membership, managing their account, just need to be fixed, but take a long time to do. And so that part of the infrastructure and building internal partnerships with other like-minded people here so that we could start putting in what I would call like the real foundation for constant innovation. And now that kind of like next phase, and I call it third year, more like at the enterprise level, is that given all this stuff is now either in place or on its way, how do we start to knit together the larger forces of our organizations all working in sync toward that? I like that. I'm starting to see a vision of sort of like a pyramid with a strong foundation, and then you build up the maturity level from the make sure we're not bleeding and everything is strong and stable and we're taking care of the lowest hanging fruit and then move towards making sure process and people and organization is working and then create a platform for the revolution from there. Yeah, just I mean, going back to the way we started here is you don't want to go in a gigantic campaign and bring a lot of people in when you don't have the infrastructure in place to actually sign them up as members. And so when I, you know, we initially took a look at our member sign-up process, there was just it looked like something from 1999. I mean, it was just it, nothing about it made sense. There weren't the testing infrastructure built into that so you could identify where people were falling out of the process. And you start to think of like we need a commerce infrastructure as sophisticated as any retail site that someone would be used to. Mm-hmm. And once that's in place, then it's about going gangbusters in terms of filling the top of the funnel. We're now up, you know, we're approaching double in terms of our traffic generation to the site through our social channels. And I just wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't have made sense to do that necessarily before you had the foundation in place to do something with it. Yeah, got to have a good, clean journey for customers to walk before putting a bunch of folks through it. Yes, sir. <laughs> So as you're evolving, what is the role that personalization is playing in your own road mapping in the future of the AMA experience for members and prospective members? What do you see happening with regards to personalized customer experiences? I think it's funny because I've been through, let's say, a bunch of different rounds of personalization in my 20-year digital career from being kind of this aspirational thing, you know, that you were going to give the choice to people to personalize their experiences. And that didn't turn out to work because no one did it. And then this kind of eventual move toward trying to do it. Well, right now, the tools are in place to do that pretty well. But it's really not so much about personalization as it is about that technology infrastructure and algorithms. And I heard this fascinating podcast a couple of weeks ago that talked about what percent of your decisions are influenced today by algorithms. What percent would you say that is just off the top of your head? Well, it's about 70%. Seven, oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. I mean, which is crazy. But if you think about all the things that you interact with in terms of retail sites like an Amazon or what you watch in television through Netflix or pretty much what you see in your social feeds, of course, all being affected by algorithms, which are people understand basically who you are and what you're interested in, because what you search for online and how you interact with things online does establish kind of your digital identity and the ability to work with that kind of data to provide you with things that are, what are you looking for? That's personalization today. And so it's funny, I was on a panel a few weeks ago and somebody, how do you cut through the clock? 
clutter in marketing these days. And it just made me laugh because it's such a outdated view of marketing because it's not like you're get the old days when you would get like all this direct mail and you had to like literally sort through the clutter or all this kind of stuff or in your inbox. Today's customer is surrounded by things they're interested in. They are through algorithms and targeting as people become more sophisticated. They're seeing things in their social feed that they're interested in. They're seeing things when they go to a website, an information site that are geared toward them. They're seeing it when they get their emails. All of these things through better technology and better understanding consumer behavior create a world in which you are surrounded by things that are mostly applicable to you. And so I live in this bubble of suit supply ads beard styles and other stuff that I'm just like, basically, I'm interested in seeing and I generally have unlimited capacity to consume those in those micro moments that I exist online. And things that fall outside of that, I don't pay attention to at all. It's kind of like binge watching on Netflix, right? You're either all in and watching 10 episodes or you're not paying attention at all. And so the thing that really bugs people these days is when they, you know, in the old days, I might have gotten like an email from J. Crew or something that says, you know, sale on women's sweaters. And you're like, what is this? You don't know me. And those are the things that people where the bar has just become so much higher because people, they don't want to see things they're not interested in. And so that's the bar you're trying to meet. Yeah. The algorithms really do a good job of helping us to binge on content or find related content that continues to allow us to follow a scent down a path. I had a client last week ask me about, uh, well, what if we want to be able to provide aspirational experiences for customers where they may not, for example, be looking at YouTube videos for managing uh productivity and calendaring, but they would benefit from watching that kind of video and would put it on an aspirational list, but their actual behavior might be more like watching um, Minecraft videos or something mm -hmm. like my six-year-old. But um... <laughs> I'll tell you what, it is very, very difficult to change consumer behavior. And you got to work with what's there. So like, if you don't like milk, there's just no way I'm ever going to get you to drink milk. And you got to understand that. And so the first step toward that is truly understanding people from a behavioral and attitudinal standpoint that's predictive of the thing that you are intending or wanting them to do. And so aspirational things, if it fits with my notion of who I am, like if I want to learn how to use power tools better and I'm into home renovation, that's like an easy way. You can introduce me to things like that. And I think that kind of content and approach will work. But if it's outside of like what I consider that, that the bounds of my identity and my interests, I'm, I'm never going to get there. For us, it really starts with, it was a redefinition of our understanding around who the customer was. And, you know, when I got here, there was a sense it was very much about like career stage. But if you just think like, you know, once somebody gets out in the residency and they become a physician, it kind of meant like they, you know, they're all the same. And that's simply not true. For us, it was we were able to create segmentations around specific interest areas. Like there are a big group of people that are interested in medical advocacy. And then there are other people that aren't. And so once we have that in place and we begin to develop specific programs for those folks, and there's you know a lot and something very rich in terms of the experience you can create and target just to them, where that kind of aspirational quality, let's say, is somebody that spans the gamut between the person who wants to read about what's going on out there and wants to stay up on the news, all the way to a person who wants to go to Capitol Hill and lobby on behalf of physicians and patients. 
that's the kind of aspiration you can build in, but you have to stay within the bounds of what is considered like existing human behavior without trying to change people. That's incredibly interesting. The um, initial exposure to the advocacy program, so is that done through what level of number of interactions before we can say, I'm not interested, this particular customer needs to try a different path? Yeah, for us, it started, and I think this is interesting because like a lot of people that I talk to will say like, how do we ever do that? What kind of technology do you need to do that? I'm saying, listen, analyze your open rates on your email. And we just did something quick kind of look at this and said, like, here are the kind of buckets of email that we're sending out. And like, how are people interacting with us about advocacy-based email and about things that were related to, let's say, research or uh, topics like practice innovation, physician burnout, things like that, and try to create some kind of segmentation where that seemed to hold together. And if you separated those people into these different buckets, you would see that the open rates and clicked opens and conversion rates associated with those different buckets were very, very different once you began to target them. And we can send out, let's say, an email about a specific advocacy initiative to just that target audience, and we'll see double the open rates and double the conversion rates versus a much broader set of folks. What we do want, and this kind of goes back to your idea of aspiration, it doesn't mean we've identified all the people that are interested in advocacy. That takes work. And we have to treat, I treat my organizations a little bit like a lead generation team. We want people to raise their hand and say, I'm interested in advocacy or I'm interested in practice transformation by getting them to look at different content uh, that's geared toward people in those different segments and saying, oh, you know, I got a hand raiser. Do a free download or a webinar. It's all about helping you identify interest areas for people so that we can expand the audience of kind of qualified folks uh, for each of these topics. A lot of the experience platforms will allow lead scoring to happen in session as well. So we can kind of build these um, interest profiles based on consumption patterns that have sort of numerical scores. So it might be advocacy as an 80 and interest in some other topic is a 60, therefore emphasize the advocacy material and somebody else's that is zero, so they don't get any of that material on subsequent interfaces, that kind of thing. Use lead scoring as a way to build that profile. Yeah, we do have our brand of that, let's just say around engagement, because in addition to segmentations that are about interest areas, we also have segmentations about how engaged people are with AMA. There are people that are very heavily engaged and there are people on the other end of that that have no interaction with us at all. And then there are people kind of in the middle. I'd say, you know, one of the greatest challenges for the organization that I saw coming in was, you know, there's a lot of people that don't know all the great things that we're up to. And there are a lot of folks probably in that non-engaged end of things that have, let's say, very specific things from a long time ago that are no longer current with like what this organization is about or what we're doing. They just may be People are never going to get to interact because that's just too long and too hard to overcome. And so it's more effective for us to focus on folks in the middle than it is to put a lot of resources to folks that are just not going to engage. Yeah, right. There's almost infinite number of segments possible. So we've got to figure out it's another prioritization exercise. Yeah. And I think, you know, here it's, we've kept it. It's pretty simple at this point in my prior life and uh, in the very different world of horse racing, we were doing more of a commerce operation than when you look at it the other, you're on a betting platform in horse racing. You can see each of those different, where people are in that journey from the time they land on your site, they sign up, activate, they bet, they don't come back again. And there's like this cycle that you can map out 
and there might be 50 or 60 different segments depending on where people are in that journey and there are tools out there now that allow you to use what is essentially AI for marketing to gear programs toward that many segments that you can never do manually so that you're having appropriate level of conversation with people no matter where they are in the process. Yeah. Yeah, we're trying to come up with ways to semantically tag content according to, for example, something we call conversations, which is essentially a customer interest segment, but it's something around a market conversation that we're trying to drive. And based on the content consumption, they kind of get associated with that. The goal is, of course, to over time use those taxonomy tags to be annotated to new content um, in less of a manual way and to associate the interests around those semantic tags in less of a manual way, more AI-driven, so that it's content targeting that can start happening via AI or at least really basic uh, machine learning. Yeah, I'd say like for us, obviously we're trying to get below to those big general buckets and into things that people are specifically interested in. I don't know, like in that case, what's the incremental gain on that? Like if somebody's interested in advocacy or they're interested in many topics across that spectrum or just one, I think just attitudinally or behaviorally, it tends to be kind of a broader net on things like that. And same with practice transformation or research. I'd say that people that are, the folks that are doing that really well at the AMA are part of the journal, the American Medical Association, which is a really a, just a first-rate medical research publishing operation. And they are, you know, really understand their operation toward making sure people find the types of things that they're interested in. And that's a thing that, you know, topic-based and specialty-based, and I learn a lot from them. Got it. Okay, well, let's talk about technology because um, we've just experienced in the last uh, part of our conversation, there's a lot of tech involved with this stuff. And how much of your role do you see being technology and what pieces are necessary to support more intelligent customer experiences? So obviously, it's extremely critical to any uh, modern day marketing and publishing organization the thing that I think I see people is just getting completely overwhelmed with the number of choices that are out there and all the different capabilities. As I you know, looked at those big MarTech maps with a thousand different providers or 10,000 or whatever it is, what's really interesting, there are just so many great capabilities. And the question is whether you have the people to actually run those platforms and do anything that's actionable with them. So I say, like, don't get overwhelmed by all of that stuff. I mean, your food and shelter level at this point, or you know, what I can say is a, a reasonable digital operation is some kind of marketing automation platform that allows you to tap into your database and coordinate your email and your web presence together in the right direction. And, and some of these platforms are starting to incorporate that AI component that allows you to kind of go back to that, that, that cycle that I talked about before from, from my racing days. That layer, traffic layer of Google Analytics, like we, I don't, you know, it's still foundational to being able to do that. And then a publishing platform that, that works for the kind of organization that you are and can meet the criteria of search engine or, uh, optimization that's necessary out there. And then the only other kind of layer that I put on top of that in terms of like the food and shelter world is a testing platform like Optimizely that allows you to like really do a lot of A-B testing to optimize your approach, whether that's on-site or through your commerce platforms and all of that. But that's the those are the basics of any kind of digital marketing and product platform uh, these days. And obviously, there are a lot of additional things that get layered on to that, depending on how big you are and what you can do with it in terms of your team and your, and your resources. What about channels? 
there's a lot of choices in terms of channels to pay attention to. As a mid-market organization, the channel decision is a, an either-or. It's a zero-sum game. There's some, you just can't do everything all, on all channels. So how do you choose as a CX leader? I think, obviously, what drives growth rules the day. So I'll say two and a half years ago or three years ago before I got here, this has been you know, primarily, in terms of membership generation, mostly a direct mail operation. And the question is, when you start to introduce a much more aggressive digital marketing platform in place uh, with the kind of channels that you know are not just commerce-based, but also content-based, how do you start to like change the, the dial on those different things? And then we do that, you know, we did that reasonably gradually. And it does allow you to start to use channels, different channels differently than you did before. And so if you have less of a reliance on the direct mail as a purely an acquisition measure, you can use that toward retention and a different way of communicating. We experiment with a lot of different channels and we quantify the value of each of those in terms of their contribution. And obviously attribution is and continues to be one of those things that is a little bit tricky, but it's clear that things are working better together. We're not spending more money uh, necessarily. We're just spending it very differently in terms of the mix. And it's clear that when you add the digital layer on top in terms of building the funnel, that it does have an incremental benefit one that is easily measured in terms of performance. And so we continue to, you know, play with those things. I would just say, like, in this world, though, the thing you have to pay attention to, is like, you know, there's this concept of the marketing funnel. I call it today's environment is about the tornado funnel because it just moves so fast. And wherever you bring someone in, you need to be prepared to put them through that. Not in this kind of like plotting sequential way that I think a lot of people think of the marketing funnel. You have to operate at the speed of today's consumer, which is like an idea pops into their head. They search for it and they're out the other end of your shopping cart in a minute. And this can apply to things as small as, you know, buying something on Amazon, a book to membership at the AMA or a trip to Paris that used to think of like that as being like so much more complex and convoluted. But you know, people move really fast once they have this interest in mind to making it happen. And so whatever channel it is, you need to think very thoroughly through each of those different parts of the funnel you need to be geared toward a seamless enterprise that turns that into action at the end. Yeah, it's amazing how many business-to-business -business software companies are moving towards SaaS-oriented purchase cycles that they're, like you said, in and out in a minute, but you can be making a subscription decision in the uh, many thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars, but it's still a, a transaction that can happen quickly, efficiently, with as minimum customer friction as possible. It just seems to work. And it's funny too. I just, I, everybody wants a subscription business. I mean, obviously the, the membership is a subscription operation and I'm used to that because I come from a publishing background, whether it's a, you know, magazines or whether it's digital data in a subscription format. It's very funny to me these days as I like go through all my social feeds and I see what they're trying to get me to subscribe to. And I just want to say like, listen, I'm never going to, you know, get a subscription to underwear or whatever it is you're trying to sell me a subscription to. I get it. But I just think it's funny in terms of the paradigm of what different things are being applied to. <laughs> it's true. Everybody wants a nice, clean subscription-based top line. Well, the customer experience often denominates in content. I'm curious about your relationship with content and particularly content structure and how that affects the customer experience. Love to hear your thoughts. It's been uh, incredible. I would say my first kind of foray, I've been in publishing for a long time, in digital publishing 
for the you know the breadth of my digital career, but content marketing is probably you know for me something in the past ten years and just realizing for for an entity like us or for my you know former role, content is the single most pivotal and important experience and part of marketing that I've seen in terms of engagement, in terms of immersion into customer. People today are defined by their searches. So when you think about your content and approach to that, think about half of it as being about playing to what people are out there searching for already and gearing yourself to win in that space. When we got here and, you know, when I got here and I looked at kind of like what we were producing, it was more toward like communicating the priorities of the AMA, not creating content around the things that people needed. And those kinds of, the difference, you can figure that out very quickly. What are people searching for online relative to what you're producing or what you could produce? And where do you fall in terms of when people do search for stuff like that? How successful are you at being in that top three, three to five positions for searches like that? And we weren't doing very well because we weren't producing the kinds of content that people were looking for in this space. And once you begin to master that part of it, Structure plays a tremendous role in them being successful with that. And, you know, different aspects of structure, number one, at the infrastructure level to make sure that you succeed in, you know, bucket number one with the searching part in terms of just the best practices in terms of publishing keywords and metadata and making sure that you are being appropriately included in the kind of searches that people are after. But also, you know, you're competing with the best content publishers out there in the world. So if you have a bad headline or a terrible first paragraph where your content's not very good, people are going to go somewhere else for it. There's just too much out there. Quality. Yes. And there's so much to cover here. I'd love to talk more. We've got to wrap up soon. I've got um, one last question about uh, customer experience, which is the patient customer experience. We're all patients and all of us uh, have a relationship at some level with care providers. And we work a lot in the healthcare industry. It's really interesting to see the evolution of patient experience. And I'm curious about your vision from your perspective at the AMA on what the patient experience is going to look like uh, over the next decade. Well, I'll start that, the answer with that to just a funny personal thing. I spend a lot of time driving back and forth on the highway and I see a lot of outdoor advertising that's done by healthcare entities, many of the kind of different systems or insurance providers. And I have to say the worst use of marketing dollars that I've ever witnessed in my life, because they simply do not communicate value proposition to anyone that would allow a patient to make a decision about anything. The complete absence of what I would call digital thinking which is like, what is the value proposition I'm trying to put across here and what I want somebody to do with it? It's very old school branding-ish type of stuff because we exist in a healthcare environment today that has so many different choices and so many options in terms of researching that. And so for people in this space, it's kind of creating that core value proposition that you're trying to communicate to prospective patients about why they should use you. That seems to be very absent uh, in today's healthcare space. I think from a patient standpoint, this is very complex and huge problem for our country. I mean, here at the AMA, our uh, direction here is to make sure that people have continue to have access to affordable healthcare coverage and that we begin to address the chronic care epidemics that are chewing up so much of healthcare costs 
which is you know at the root of this problem that we're having right now for people to you know how do you balance innovation in this space that you know actually produces better outcomes for people and so there is so much change and so much transformation happening in healthcare these days that it, from a patient's standpoint, hopefully we're headed toward an experience for them where they can address their healthcare issues. Technology is enabling both them and their physicians to provide better care that delivers better results, that we can measure those results. And then no matter where that patient goes, that there is some kind of uniform system out there that allows their data under their control, under the patient's control, to follow them and to not turn doctors into basically order entry people who are having to spend so much time and effort putting in notes and doing all this kind of work and serving the technology and not vice versa. There's a long way to go, it seems, to get there, but um, I'm glad we're in different parts of the healthcare industry all working on on that uh, unified and more effortless experience for both providers and patients. Well, thank you so much. This has been a really fun and insightful minutes, Todd. Thank you for your time. It went fast. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much, Chris. How can our listeners follow up with your work? Are you available online in places they can go look for you? I'm very much online. I suggest uh, LinkedIn would probably be the best place to reach out to me. I'm on every other social channel as well. Well connected. All right. Thank you, Todd. And have a very good rest of your day. You too. Thank you.